Welcome to The Crux. Each week, two of the world's top communicators take you behind the scenes of the news of the day to explore the crux of communications that are shaping business, politics, and our daily lives. Hi, this is Gary Sheffer. And hi, I'm Mike Fernandez, and we're glad to be with you from Boston University. Gary, how you doing? Doing great, Mike. Nice to hear your voice again. Good to hear your voice. Looking forward also to listening to our guest. We're actually, ha- we have an author with us today, David Murray, who's just written a book called An Effort to Understand Hearing One Another and Ourselves in a Nation Cracked in Half. Should be interesting. It's very good. I'm a big fan. So anyway, let's go to the news. The first thing that I want to talk about, which which may seem seem strange to some of our continual listeners, is Harry and Meghan and their bombshell interview with Oprah. Yep. Now, what's fascinating to me is the American colonies freed themselves from the British crown nearly two and a half centuries ago. But you may not know it based on the remarkable attention the Oprah interview with Prince Harry and Meghan Markle has gotten in North America. Both Harry and Meghan in this interview said that unnamed relatives had expressed concern about the skin tone of what their their baby would be. They accused the firm of Mm -hmm. character assassination and perpetuating falsehoods. And and Markle said she contemplated suicide during her time as a working royal. Additionally, Harry revealed that he was forced to flee Canada and to make multi-million dollar deals with Spotify and Netflix after his family literally cut him off financially. And then it took two days, two days, Buckingham Palace finally issued a statement which read, the whole family is saddened to learn the full extent of how challenging the last few years have been for Harry and Meghan. The issues raised, particularly that of race, are concerning. While some recollections may vary, they are taken very seriously and we will be addressed by the family privately. Harry, Meghan, and Archie will always be much loved family members. So Gary, clearly a bad week for the royal family. What should we make of all of this as communicators? Did Harry and Meghan handle this well? And what of the response from Buckingham Palace? You know, Mike, I'll say two things that, and we discussed this in my crisis class at BU last week. And I had taken the position with the class that, boy, if it was my family, I just don't like doing these things in front of Oprah in the world, right? But they made me understand. So so, so you you, you were leaning in the direction of Piers Morgan. Yeah, exactly. Well, no, <laughs> no, not not exactly. But I, I just I don't understand living your life in public now. But they said, Professor, look, these folks are public no matter what they do, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not mm-hmm. realistic. So their point of view, Mike, and I'm translating mm-hmm. for them, was look, if you want to drive change, if you want to make things different, if you want to call out something that's improper or unjust, you have to. And it, to them, it sounded like Harry and Meghan had been frustrated in their private conversations and decided to go public. So from a pure communications point of view, picking Oprah to do mm-hmm. the interview, I think was brilliant. Mm-hmm. I think they conducted themselves fairly well 
in the interview. And I would have to say, based on my students' reaction, that they are viewed much more favorably by that generation. And by the way, that generation of young people in the States is incredibly focused on the royals. They are very interested in the family. So I would just say that if you're going to do this, I think they did it the right way. And I think the Buckingham Palace statement was too little, too late. Yeah, You almost wonder if there was something, some amount of empathy and heart that they could have shown earlier yes. in, and, in and, this process. And you wonder too, uh, you know, you and I come out of politics, Mike, you know, the cynicism in me always comes to the fore in, in these kinds of situations where you wonder if the palace issues a statement and then deputizes others to go out and undercut the opponent. And certainly we know the palace has a very strong communications operation, at least mm -hmm. that's how it's been portrayed over mm -hmm. the years. So I'm a little bit cynical about the real strategy that may be behind what's going on. Yeah, it also was interesting and eerie how similar some of the conversation with Oprah was in comparison to similar interviews that Lady Di had yeah. had, you know, decades ago. Yeah, so there's a pattern. Yeah. We're going to shift gears now to burger royalty. That is Burger King in the UK is finding itself in a bit of a tweet storm. On, of all days, International Women's Day, Burger King put out a tweet that read simply, women belong in the kitchen. The fast food giant then followed up its initial tweet with another as part of a thread. And it read, if they want to, of course, Yet only 20% of chefs are women. The chain then added that it is launching a scholarship program to help female Burger King employees pursue their culinary dreams. The problem is that a lot of Twitter users got pretty upset by that first message, and some even failed to read the second and third messages in the thread. And then in a bit of a recovery move, the company explained the tweets were meant to bring attention to the huge lack of female representation in the restaurant industry. It deleted the original three-tweet thread and posted two tweets. The first tweet said, we hear you. We got our initial tweet wrong and we're sorry. Our aim was to draw attention to the fact that only 20% of professional chefs in UK kitchens are women and to help change that by awarding culinary scholarships. We will do better next time. And then the second tweet said, we decided to delete the original tweet after our apology. It was brought to our attention that there were abusive comments in the thread and we don't want to leave the space open for that. So that was it. Gary, what lessons should communicators take away from this example? And what do you think of Burger King's attempt to apologize and recover? You know, Mike, I'll, again, I'll, I'll say it's coincidentally, we. Our students wanted to talk about this at, at Boston University. And I learned a couple, I learned one thing really important from the students in this discussion. The first thing was, to your point, people often don't read the second and third tweets. So you need to make sure that first one doesn't lean heavily on what's to follow. And certainly some competitors like KFC jumped in immediately after that first tweet and, and pointed out the awkwardness of that tweet or the wrongheadedness of it. And secondly, we got into a conversation with the students about why does this happen so often? Why do companies like H&M put out a t-shirt, a sweatshirt that was offensive 
to Black Americans or ads that go wrong. And one student said, you know, Professor, it's because there aren't enough people, diverse people, mm -hmm. in the approval chain, or there's not enough sensitivity to these issues in the approval chain. And so if you want to change your organization, you want to avoid these kinds of things, take a look at the diversity of your team. And I thought it was just a great observation by a young person. So look, it, it happens frequently. I think it was wrongheaded from the start. And then the apology wasn't great. And the reason they gave for deleting the first tweet wasn't great. It wasn't authentic in my view. So now, lastly, Mike, I'd ask you, mm -hmm. my students said, cynically, some of them in a good way, good discussion. What does it matter, Professor? Burger King got its name out there and people were talking about Burger King. So all good, all news is good news. Is, is. <laughs> exactly, but that's how cynically they had viewed it is that it was purposeful. Yeah, uh, I doubt that it was purposeful because I don't think on International Women's Day you want to stub your toe in quite the way. I mean, sometimes what happens, I think, though, in communications is that people think about being cute and clever first, as opposed to thinking about the process of communication and thinking about the audiences they're trying to reach and what's going to actually be the takeaway. You know, it, we live in a world where we're bombarded by messages and people don't always listen or read that next sentence, that next statement. So you have to be much more cautious. And as your students said, the world we live in, particularly in North America, is much more diverse today than it was 20 years ago. Another interesting element happened in, you know, we talk about people communicating in echo chambers and, you know, Fox News and MSNBC are often used to talk about what's happening on, on the right and what's happening on the left. Last week, Tucker Carlson, the Fox News host, criticized the U.S. military for creating uniforms to fit women properly, including flight suits for pregnant women in the military. And this is what he said on the air. So we've got new hairstyles and maternity flight suits. Pregnant women are going to fight our wars? It's a mockery of the U.S. military, Carlson said. Now, after he said that, there were a number of senior military officials who took Carlson to task. And then Carlson, on Thursday night, after this bit of controversy, addressed the controversy on his show and he said, today, the Department of Defense launched a large and coordinated public relations offensive against this show. Pentagon brass issued hostile statements. People in uniform sent out videos on social media. The DOD, the Department of Defense, even issued a news release attacking us. Carlson insisted he did not have some hateful bias against pregnant women flying military jets. And he added, if the Pentagon can show that pregnant pilots are the best, we will be the first to demand an entire air force of pregnant pilots. So Gary, could it be that Tucker Carlson is a victim here? That's clearly what he's trying to do. Mm -hmm. Or did he overstep? Or is this just another sign of the times in our political polarization? Well, clearly, Tucker Carlson does not believe what he said, right? I, I just think... You just think he's inflaming. 
I think he's doing it purposefully. The entire primetime schedule of Fox News is about victimization and grievance a grievance culture. And certainly that's, he, he is the best at it. He's best at this. It's what his comments were wrongheaded and he knew it and there was no defending them. So the easiest way to explain it or rationalize it is to make yourself a victim, at least in his eyes. This is exactly the kind of thing that we talk about with David Murray, our guest later in this program, that we see on cable news. That's not journalism. It's, in, in this case, propaganda and just sort of hateful in, in so many ways, given the number of women who serve in the military these days and do so valiantly, courageously, and effectively. Yeah. Well, and it's a little bit of a of a tin ear, right? Yeah. I, I, I mean, we've even seen this in corporations where they quickly lash out at their opponents mm -hmm. before really understanding the consequences of what they say. Mm -hmm. We've got these hair trigger responses in the body politic and in public discourse today. And somehow, some way, we've got to get beyond that. Yeah. Tucker Carlson is a one-trick pony, Mike. And this is his trick, victimization. And he's making a lot of money doing it. Yeah, he sure is. So, Gary, we've talked before a bit about political polarization being enabled by social media. But there's a, a new study from the American Economic Review. It finds that social media platforms such as Facebook can actually help to reduce animosity between liberals and conservatives, Democrats and Republicans. Given congressional hearings where social media execs have been raked over the coals and the outrage over possible social media censorship and discussions over publishing liability, you might think social media only inflames political tensions, but the study says not always. The study found that although people tend to gravitate toward news that confirms their own views, they're willing to read articles that feature opposing views if they appear on their feeds, specifically on Facebook. While reading an opposing view may not change one's mind, it may change their attitudes towards those who hold opposing views. In fact, two months into the study, it was found that participants' attitudes towards those who hold opposing views actually improved. The study also underscores just how important social media platforms like Facebook are to molding public opinion. Their algorithms play a key role in shaping what kinds of news and stories we actually see. And if exposure to opposite sides is what helps contribute to depolarization, then I say Facebook and others should look into it. In short, it seems to me kind of a nudge theory at work. Mm -hmm. If we expose people to diverse thoughts, to different thoughts, perhaps they become more understanding of others. Gary? What do you think of the role of social media platforms with regard to this? And, and do you see more harm than good as a result of these platforms? And how might social media platforms be incentivized to promote bipartisanship or at least civility? Boy, that's a lot of questions. I, I think they're doing more harm than good right now, Mike, despite this study. And because they do continue to allow, despite some big efforts, disinformation, misinformation, and dangerous information to be promulgated. And, and we've seen that, of course, in things related to the rollout of the COVID vaccine or the January 6th insurrection and riot, all in, in, inspired, or that in part, 
in, inspired by what's on social media platforms. However, this is a ray of light. If the news feeds are done well, if they're not manipulated, they can be forces for good. I just think it's a long way to get there, Mike. Uh, you know, yeah. I, I don't mean to diminish the this study, but wow, we all know that sensational news sells. Mm -hmm. And so far, it's selling really well, uh, particularly on places like like Facebook. Yeah, you know, I, th I think as I reflect on this, it, it's like so much of this is dependent on the receiver of the information yes, yeah. to kind of, you know, edit and call the material they read in, in, in a way that's somewhat more informing and looking uh, across a, a greater scheme of input. I, I know some years ago, as the internet was taking off, I found myself as a political junkie actually wanting to go to realclearpolitics.com, mm -hmm, which is owned by Forbes today. But what it does is it brings together lots of articles and all these political surveys from multiple sources from the left to the right and in the middle. And you have a better idea of what's happening in, in politics across the U.S. as a result of that, I think. And it, and it prompts me to always think about not just what my own political mooring is, but about how people get to different conclusions faced with the same amount or the same types of information. I just think we, we somehow have to better edit ourselves about what is real and, and what's not. And we also have to all have a learning journey where we're totally always in pursuit of the facts and the truth. Well said, Mike. Well, we've got a terrific guest. Looking forward to hearing David. Today on The Crux is David Murray, the author of a book that couldn't be timelier, or is it more timely? I don't know, Mike. I'm, I'm really nervous because we have a professional writer on The Crux this week, so I'm, but it could be more timelier. A, an effort to understand hearing one another and ourselves in a nation cracked in half. Kirkus called the book a smart, witty account of America's failure to communicate. Sounds like a line from a cool hand Luke. Right. <laughs> anyway, let's get on to enough jokes. Let's get on to David and his terrific book. David heads the Professional Speechwriters Association and serves as editor and publisher of the monthly magazine Vital Speeches of the Day. His writing has appeared in The Atlantic, The New York Times, and many other publications. David comments daily on communications issues on his blog, Writing Boots. He is the author of the memoir Raised by Mad Men and co-author of the New York Times bestseller, Tell My Sons. His new book is a collection of more than 50 essays that examine how we communicate with each other in America, 
It's centered on the thesis that America lacks meaningful avenues of authentic communication. So David, welcome to The Crux. It's great to be here, Gary. So let me, let's start with the book title, at least the first part, An Effort to Understand. And it's drawn from the memorable speech given by Robert Kennedy right after the assassination of Martin Luther King in 1968. And you cite Kennedy's assertion that we need to make an effort to understand one another, which starts with, of course, understanding ourselves. You write, we need to stop shaking our heads at one another and start communicating more honestly with ourselves. What do you mean by that, David? I think that, you know, how often have you heard on social media or heard in conversations with people like-minded to you where people say, I will never understand how someone could vote for someone like that. Mm -hmm. That's a vow of ignorance. It's a vow of ignorance in a, in, a, in a society that, this is a democracy, this is a country that, that was, you know, one of the things about that, that Kennedy speech that nagged at me as I heard it over and over and over again, as I played it all around the world to audiences of speechwriters and communicators is that term, an effort to understand. What does he mean by that? Why does he keep repeating that sort of bland sounding phrase? Yeah. He said, in this country, we need to make an effort. He says it over and over. Why? Because this country is a hard country to be a citizen in. This is a country, you know, with, with slavery as, as one of its social bases that we are always going to be dealing with. It's a country that is of immigrants. It's a country, mm -hmm. it's always going to be a country that's harder to live in, that, that you, where you have to make an effort to understand. And the way you make an effort to understand other people is to find connections with those people. And that means less, listening with imagination, not just listening to what people say. Right. If they sound like an idiot, not just listening to what they say, but imagining yourself in their shoes, imagining how they came to that point of view, seeing analogous places in your life that they're in in their life. And that's, that seems to me to be the, the obligation of American citizens. Interesting. And one that I'm not we've given sure. up on that, David? Is, have, is, we, have we given up on it? Yeah, understanding others. I mean, understanding ourselves. I mean, I think that in, in some ways, I don't even know about giving up. I think, I think it almost might be some of us never tried. We, we didn't consider it our responsibility. I mean, I, the self-righteousness with which both sides of the political equation come to to these these conversations mm -hmm. online it's it doesn't it doesn't i don't i don't get the sense that these people tried and failed mm -hmm. i get the sense that a lot of us have mm -hmm. not tried yet yeah. yeah don't you think one of the problems is that we 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 listen but when we listen we don't listen to understand we listen so we find our opening to say our piece it's communication as a competition. It's communication to win. It's communication to persuade. Communication isn't persuasion. Persuasion is persuasion. Propaganda mm -hmm. is persuasion. Communication is sharing, commune. We are sharing ideas back and forth that we're trying to understand one another. It's, it's its own philosophy. And it's one that I think even professional communicators often forget that the point isn't just to jam what's in my head into your head and send you off. <laughs> I was just going to say, Mike, that uh, I'm teaching a crisis class today, and I'm going to talk about persuasion, yeah. right? You know, how to be persuasive in a difficult time for your organization. But I love this idea. The point being is sharing is more important sometimes in a crisis than 
persuasion. So anyway, yeah. I, I, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. And David, I find it interesting. So, so you've had a career where you've kind of highlighted kind of the best of communication. And this is really in some vein, a book about the lack of communication. And, 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 and as I look at that, you know, one of the things that, that I really like is that you tell us that we have more in common with one another than we might think. What is it that we must do to focus more on what we have in common rather than focusing on our differences? I mean, if you think about, think about the worst wherever you are politically, wherever you are socially, wherever, whatever acts you have to grind and wherever you feel you are in the world. Think of your worst enemy. Think of the worst enemy that you, that you can sort of, the straw, the straw person you can conjure up that's like on the other side. Now think about what that person goes through every day when they get up. They have to get up in the morning. So do you. They, they, have, they have a family they have to, to deal with in the morning. They have to talk to. They have, to, they have a job to do. They work all day long. They, they, they have all kinds of issues come up in their life. They, they are working with their family. They're saving for college. They're doing all these things that you do. All the energy that you put into the world to try to hold your family together, hold your community together, hold your bank account together, all of that. They're doing all that stuff. You have everything in common with, with almost everybody. I mean, and, and it really doesn't matter you know, if you're talking about rich people or poor people, but, but we're going to, but we're going to focus on the, the, the political difference that we have, or we're going to focus right. on, on some attitudinal differences that we have. And those attitudinal differences and political differences are obviously very consequential in terms of public policy. But if we're going to understand each other, it's not really that hard. We, our lives are all very similar and the, and what we go through and what other people go through and the, and the, the wonderful things that, that, that almost, Almost all people, you can find some heroic thing that they are doing or have done in their life and that they're, that they're facing and dealing with every day and that they're achieving. And I think that's really true pretty much across the, across the spectrum. And I think just thinking about that and looking for that in other people, assuming that in other people is something we ought to do. You know, on this podcast, we've talked a lot over the last two years about the, the, the clash of ideas and talked about how polarization in part is almost nurtured by the new media environment that we find ourselves in today. Should the media play a more active role with regard to depolarization? And if so, how and, and, and what would they do? I mean, I don't blame media across media. I blame cable TV news for this. I don't think that, I mean, you know, we could, we could sit around and talk about how, how, whether the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal are more or less polarizing or, or polarized than they, than they were 10 or 15 years ago. That's a conversation. But what's going on with this cable stuff is just, it's just brutal. I mean, if you take, if you take two months off of watching MSNBC or Fox, or, or really even CNN, you come back to it. And I've done this. I've, I've done this as an experiment. You come back to that. And it's so ridiculously obvious what they're doing. They're basically, you turn on MSNBC and they say, you know what the other side's saying? They're saying this. Are you going to sit there and take that? That's what, and they're pushing you and they're, they're poking you. That is exactly what's going on on these things. And they do it very cleverly. It looks like information. It's really well-researched. And it's basically trying to get you to, and no, they're never going to change that. 
But but aren't they also kind of gateway drugs into uh, other online media that that, that sort of takes it to another level? And drugs is the right word because there you can you know, especially during the Trump era, but all, all the time, you know, when you tune into some of these things or when you click into an article, you have this feeling. It almost feels like a morphine drip. It's like, okay, oh something nasty about Andrew Cuomo. I can't stand that guy. I'm going to get some more of this stuff. And honestly, we've been doing that with Trump. We've been, it, it is a drug. It's, it's, it's like, it's like a, a mental drug. Like Red Sox fans with Yankee fans. Exactly. Exactly. And if you find out that somebody on the Yankees might be going on the DL, you are going to read that article because that's fantastic. That's what these guys are doing to us. And it is, it's, it's, it's bad. It's just so bad for us. It's, and, and we ought to, to try to ask Joe Scarborough to stop doing that or Tucker Carlson to stop doing that is, is trying to ask somebody to give up how they make their living. It's never going to happen. So, you know, and, and the drug analogy or metaphor is like drugs, it, it works. In, in other words, you know, I was at GE when MSNBC decided to move in the direction that they did. I guess progressive would be a word they would characterize themselves as. It went from a net network where no one was watching to a network where some nights they're the top watch cable news station mm-hmm. network. So it, it it does work. And and they understand, David, to your point of Mike, what the fix is, what yeah. they need to deliver for uh, for the people who are watching them. And it's, obviously, it's the thinnest kind of gruel for us. It's it, yeah. it, if it helps you. It, it, it's like a it really is like a sugar high. But yeah, it, it but ultimately it's it rots. It rots us. So, David, what I really like about this book is the personal nature of it. Now, there are 50 essays in here, but you talk a lot. You talk a lot about politics and other things, and and we'll get to the personal nature of it in a minute. But you also examine the intersection of everyday life, such as marriage and grief, alongside the political divide. And Kirkus, in its review, said this is where the book really shines. How did you come to make those connections between everyday life and what is dividing us today? Well, I grew up among communicators. My parents were both writers and they were both very thoughtful communicators. My dad was in advertising and he had all these philosophies about how how people were were made and how they how they received information and how they and how to get into somebody else's head. He was always he was forever explaining to clients, you know, you make pens. The world is not about pens. Nobody cares about what mechanical components of your pen they care about themselves and their lives and their loved ones, you know, and we've been surrounded by speech writers all the, all these years. And, and, you know, nobody cares about your three part part strategy. Nobody goes home and, and after going to a speech and says, well, the CEO said three things and they lined up perfectly with general electric strategy. <laughs> no, they show up there looking for, looking for ways to be healthy or wealthier the, or happier. That's the case Gary made. <laughs> <laughs> I spent my life on that. Please, I'm crushed. You still have some time left. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, I mean people. People care about when they show up to, to a speech, or when they show up to a movie, or when they show up to anything. They care about their lives, and they care about their loved ones and their communities. And and so you know, when I see I see so many people do things in public that they would never do in private. Would you send a nasty, mean text to your wife? Well, then why would you? Yes, maybe you would. I, I, I wouldn't. <laughs> honey, honey, I would never do that. <laughs> 
But like, why would you then send him a completely sarcastic, nasty, dismissive message out onto Facebook to your yeah. 800 or 1,000 Facebook friends, you know, magically thinking that only some of them will read it, but the ones who disagree with it won't read it. And like, what are you, what are you doing? And I, and I just think that if you think of your public life as a communicator and you think of your social community life as a communicator in the way that you think about your private life, and I, I, I think I have an example in the book where I talk about, you know, if you say something nasty about, if you say church is idiotic and your grandmother who goes to church overhears you and you, you, you're immediately embarrassed, you turn beet red, oh my God, grandma heard me say that. Mm-hmm. And then do you turn around and say, and call grandma a snowflake for getting pissed? No, you apologize. You say, I'm sorry. I didn't, I know you feel strongly about church and I didn't mean to step on you. And I didn't, I don't disrespect your view on this. I'm just, you know, I have a different attitude about this. And, and grandma knows you and loves you and says, it's okay. I know you're an, a, a heathen, but you're, we're going to come along at some point, but we just don't, we, we behave so much differently elsewhere. And I think it's, I think it's tearing us apart. And I think if we think, if we try to behave publicly the way we behave privately a little bit more i think that's that's good well, either that or you could aspire to be omb director <laughs> <laughs> mike sure mike with the washington references fair uh, enough <laughs> so so how to extend that now out of the living room with your grandma david to obviously our society this country is made up of people with different backgrounds different points of view different perspectives. How does that extend into conversations with people you may not know and may not agree with? I mean, I would go back to, to what I said. I think there, I think there's, I think that Studs Terkel was my, one of my great, yeah. great heroes. And Studs Terkel introduced the very idea that oral history could be interesting, that you could sit down with any, you know, you could sit down with, a, with an advertising executive or a plumber or anybody, anybody from any walk of life, if you ask them to talk about something that mattered to them, something they knew something about, that they could, they would be interesting and they would be wise. And I knew Studs and I saw how he talked to people. I saw the wit, the spirit that he brought to every conversation, which was, you know, and he was a, he was a virulent socialist. Like this was yeah, a, exactly, this is not a, a, like a politically moderate guy. I'm not advocating for political moderate, moderation. I'm advocating for love of fellow human beings. I'm advocating for, if I sit down with you, I'm curious about you. I think you have something to say. You've lived a different life. Where did you, where were you born? Mm-hmm. What were your parents like? You know, what was the first time you did this? You know, when was the first time you went out on a date? I mean, I'm curious about that with everybody. And, and, and so, so are, so I think are a lot of people. And I think, I think this, this online this year has been terrible. This four years has been terrible. We think of each other as online cartoons. We think of 70 million people as idiots. Like what are you, it's just, we really have to use our imagination and remember that we are very much the same. My dad had a motto as a writer. He, He said, you have to start, we are all the same. That's, that's, if you're writing, if you're writing something and you, you decide the other person is interested in one thing and you're interested in another, or that person's dumb and they'll like something that you wouldn't be interested in, you've, you've, you're losing it. So we are all the same isn't, isn't exactly true. And I think we've also learned this year that we've got a lot to learn. For instance, white people probably have a lot more to learn than we think about what it's like to be black in this country. I think, I think that's been a bit of a facer and that's, that's, that's healthy, but the basic 
understanding that that we share basic humanity with other people is just crucial to living in a country like this. Yeah, yeah well, you, you know, one of the things about that, too, that's interesting to me, and I just watched a, a biography of Jimmy Breslin, who was to New York what, you know, Studs Terkel, in part, was to Chicago, or Mike Wakeville was to Chicago. Mm -hmm. But then communication was more, it was longer form. We had more time, we had more space. And now we're operating where we're kind of, you know, we, we write a sentence or two and then we're off to the next thing. And, and we read, we don't really read, we scan, you know, multiple posts, one right after another. Does, does that create a different psychology and a different behavior around all of this? Well, I suppose. I mean, I think, you know, I, I published this thing called Vital Speeches of the Day. Think, think about this. Vital Speech of the Day was invented, was, was launched in 1934 because the guy who was launching it felt that the problem was in this country, nobody actually listened to anybody's whole ideas. The term soundbite wasn't there but back then, but it was like people excerpt little ideas and put it in slants and put it in their own newspaper and slant it in a certain way. This guy was like, we're going to have the America's great leaders speak and we're just going to publish their speeches unedited and we're still publishing that magazine today for the same reason i mean we could get into you know the, the deplorables thing with hillary clinton i, I talk mm -hmm. about that in the book when she said yeah. deplorables and you know you never call people deplorables and she said she talked about people in a basket of deplorables that's just like not good language people don't fit in baskets people aren't deplorables like that's just or maybe some of them are but you don't say that but if you look at the if you look at the whole context of that speech she was saying yes there are some trump voters who are like unreachable mm -hmm. but there are other Trump voters who we have to listen to. There are other Trump voters who have reasons to be upset, who, who feel left out and lost and, and left behind. And those people need to be listened to. They have a po real point of view. That was the gist of her speech. Mm -hmm. And what did we walk away with? Oh, she called us deplorables. And we're making now we're, in five minutes, we're making T-shirts. And people are wearing them. I'm the, I'm a deplorable. So yeah, I think you know I'm again part of that's just trying to be responsible citizens. I, I it feels a little crazy for me to be calling to be writing and telling citizens to be more responsible. But I I, I feel like you know we've been calling on leaders. We, we're we're complaining about leaders and politicians and all the time. And and I honestly. I'm calling on citizens to be better. There's this great quote from Edmund Burke that I came across recently that I love. He's talking about manners and he says, Manner, manners are of more importance than laws. Upon them in a great measure, the laws depend. The law touches us here and there and now and then. Manners are what vex or soothe, corrupt or purify, exalt or debase, barbarize or refine us by a constant, steady, uniform, sensible operation like a, that of the air we breathe in. And manners get made by all of us. And, mm -hmm. uh, and I, I think, I think I'm, kind of, I'm kind of calling on all of us to be better. Yeah. You know, one of, the, one of the chapters that intrigued me was a chapter on real leadership. And it kind of focuses on the stakeholder purpose statement of the Business Roundtable, which was signed by 181 CEOs of some of the largest companies in the world. And, and you pose the question, do companies really exist to serve a healthy society? And then you make the point that 
Americans are starving to the point of hallucination for a sense that they are united in something good. I think I have two questions related to that. One, are they really that seized about being united in something great? And then said another way, where's the evidence? And then two, does business have some responsibility ultimately to unite all of us? I think that I mean, I'm not sure I can come up with actual evidence about Americans' desire to be involved in something good. I see it all the time in- Well, you um, certainly feel it. I think- I, 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 I feel I, it. I, I think I feel it. I think Gary feels it. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a natural human social thing, if, you know, to, to, to want to be united in something, in something good, whether that's your family, whether that's your community, whether that's your nation. And I think what, what has happened in the last, I would say, 12 years, I, I've been writing this book for, for since before Obama got elected. But I think that what's happened is that we don't feel that we're united in our nation. So we, we do have this feeling that we, we need to be united in something. And, you know, one of the things I started, I run this organization called the Executive Communication Council. And these are people who advise CEOs on communication. And one of the things they started noticing a few years ago is something happens. Kobe Bryant dies, for instance. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, employees are calling on the PR people. What does the CEO have to say about this? Mm-hmm. And the CEO's going, wait a minute, I'm the CEO of a, of a logistics company. Who cares what I think about Kobe Bryant? Or who cares what I think, actually, for that matter, about LGBTQ? Or who cares what I think? And all of a sudden, people start turning. It's like, it's like a nation, you know, it turns its own lonely eyes to you, the CEO. Why the CEO? The CEO of UPS didn't have to worry about this stuff 15 years ago. Nobody cared or thought, knew, or cared about what that person thought about this stuff. It's because we don't have this national, this basic sense that there's a national unity. So if you work for UPS or you work for Apple, your CEO is the closest thing you have to a president. That's the organization that you're involved with. That's an organization that still basically works. That's an organization whose self-interest is, it may be, it may be business only, it may be seem limited, but in some ways, in some ways, that's that's a benefit. You know, UPS, uh, I use them as an example a lot because somebody said, you know, Trump can pull us out of Paris, the Paris Accord, but UPS can't pull out of the Paris Accord. UPS is a, is a global organization that's focused on sustainability and doing business all around the world. So in some ways, I think organizations have become who we've turned to and CEOs find themselves in this very unfamiliar place. And, they, and I think a lot of them are ill-equipped intellectually and education-wise to deal with it. Yeah. It's almost as if the, the old adage, right? Nature abhors a void. Yep. And as a consequence, CEOs and executive leadership of large companies is being forced into that void. Yep. It's interesting. Now, I'm also curious, you know, when we talked a little bit about, you know, how we need to pay attention, it's almost a plea for greater civility. And the book comes at me in kind of two directions. It talks about civility on one hand and seemingly honesty on the other. Now, the two to me seem a tad different. You know, in other words, do we, do we need to make our language more bland or blunt? Do we bite our tongue or say what's on our mind? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that we say what's on our mind and acknowledge it's our mind. Mm-hmm. 
Mm -hmm. I mean, civility doesn't mean me, us not talking to each other and with our backs to each other. Civility doesn't mean me sitting here saying nice things to you while quietly assuming that you are the spawn of Satan. Civility means me saying full-throated, full-hearted, with humor, with imagination, what I think. But acknowledging to you, this is what I think. This is the this is my point of view. What's your point of view? To me, you know, civility, I, I, I call it, you know, a hiss. Civility is not what we're going for. Civility is, is just, is only good manners. And I, I believe in civil communication, which means I share what's on my mind and you share what's on your mind. And we listen to each other. Yeah, it's like what we used to call public discourse, right? Yes. And, and we used to have friendly debates you know, where one side would present their point of view and another would present their point of view, but we'd all go drink or eat afterwards. <laughs> and I think, and I think, har I, I, I caution against harking back to that because I think of that, I think, you know, I think of, of people in our society who need, who need, that sounds a little old, old boys networky yeah, to me. Yeah. Like, like, like Chris Matthews is always talking back about yeah. the wonderful times when Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan yeah, could drink yeah. together. It's like, there's a lot of people in this country who are, aren't cool with that either. Like it's okay, it's okay to have it be messy. It's okay to have it be loud. It's okay to raise voices. It's, yeah. The basic assumption here is that, is that we're all, we're all trying to, to, to make a better union here. And I think that's, I think that's what, what I'm going for. Well, so, so how do you look at all, how do you look, as, as you think about the book, and, and clearly you've been writing the book for some time, how do you understand looking through the prism of January 6th and the insurrection at the Capitol? How do we align these two things? Or, or have we just dug a deeper hole and now we've, we've, we've got to find a, a bigger shovel? Well, January 6th was was terrifying and truly disturbing for everybody who pays attention. I mean, so that that's true and and this QAnon stuff is scary and that's that's sort of that's cult stuff and that's that's just like truly disturbing stuff. I do think that even in the January 6th thing and and this, you know, this is hard to get across, but even the January 6th thing, when you think about what you saw there on January 6th, and you think you look at the looks on the faces of the people who were who were going into that Capitol that day, and you set aside the the scare the truly scary nature of that, and you realize this was the most exciting day of any of their lives, of mm -hmm. most of their lives. This was a time, think about yourself and think about a time when when you said, screw it, I'm just gonna do this. Think about a time when you gave your finger to authority and said, I am you know what? I'm doing whatever I want here. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm doing, think about a time when you felt community, when you like, you know, I have this, I had this time in my life where, where, where I, I was in, got myself to the head of like a community movement. And I remember suddenly, like, suddenly I had all these friends in this community and we were all trying to do something right. and do something together. And it was the most rewarding and exciting time. I mean, I look back on it with great nostalgia. And so all those impulses, you know, I hate that 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 January sixth thing happened, and I hate the spirit in which it happened. And and my community organizing what didn't involve talk, chanting about hanging people. Okay, but if we're going to try to understand how that happened and how to how to make that that kind of thing unhappen, we do have to understand what's going on inside the people who are doing it. We have to understand what needs they have for community, what needs they have 
for a sense that they, again, that they're involved with something together. That is, that is a core human belief. And I think that that's what I kind of mean by listening with imagination. It's not just listening to what people say and saying, you're an idiot. The election wasn't rigged. It's saying, why is that person so convinced that the election was rigged? How did we get here? And I think, I think doing that is, is, is everybody's responsibility. You know, the listening part of this is really interesting. We've lost our ability to listen because you don't have to, right? To with someone who disagrees with you or has a different background or perspective. How do we change that, David? This is something I, I talk about a lot with students. We we're talking about stakeholders, right? And I grew up in a corporate world where, you know, somebody opposed you or criticized you, you basically told them to talk to the hand, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You basically said, I don't need to engage with you. And this idea of listening skills and, and, and what you described so well was sitting down like studs did and just with passion, almost interrogating someone in a personal way and actually absorbing it and then transferring that to your organization. Look, these people, you know, just want this and this and this. And it's because, right, but it's so hard for people in a boardroom or in a C-suite to go through that process, right? Because they're taught to be sort of masters of the universe and they know everything. What can you do? What could a communicator do in a C-suite to introduce that kind of deep listening? So to answer your question, for example, right after George Floyd, I won't name the company, but a number of our of our folks in the Executive Communication Council got together. And, you know, the CEO of that organization interviewed a number of Black senior executives about George Floyd and about their experience being Black and working in, in the company. Had never done that before. Heard stories that changed him, that that touched him deeply. Heard a story of a senior African-American executive in the organization who went out for a run, comes home in his fancy neighborhood, comes into his house. He's having a drink of water. And all of a sudden, there's 15 cops outside the house demanding that he come out because a neighbor had seen this African-American guy running through. These stories... The CEO had never heard these stories. Mm-hmm. So these stories he he heard, it was a they have all these listening sessions in this organization. He heard the story, he's passing it on from a credible person who's close to the close enough to the board that the board has to understand. And the CEO has been moved to tears about th- these wow. kinds of stories. So to me, I think a communicator has to find those people who can talk to the CEO, has to find those people who people have to listen to on these issues and realize this isn't just a bunch of jerky activists out there. This is, these are credible, these are credible human beings who, who have truly something to say. And I, I mean, my question is to you, why, why do you think the change has been that you suddenly now feel compelled to get through to board members. I mean, for, for years, corporations did just say, talk to the hand. Is it the, is it, what has changed in your mind that makes it corporations really need to listen to this stuff? Yeah. And I think David, it's, there's a couple of reasons I can think of off the top of my head. One, it's generational, right? Uh, You know, and I think of the, the change at GE, for example, from Jack Welch to Jeff Immel, different generation raised with a, a different set of understanding about business role in society. I think there's that. I don't diminish either, and this sounds kind of harsh, but I don't diminish the 
the personal risk that board members feel from a financial and fiduciary responsibility to oversee the organization in a significant way. I just think business has come to a different understanding than the Milton Friedman approach. And while things like the business roundtable oath of purpose, whatever they called it, may seem on paper to be nothing more than a head fake in some ways, I do think CEOs are being pushed by another generation in their ranks to actually open their ears and do something. That's well, and, and never harder than they've been pushed this year. I mean, this was the yeah, year exactly. that was actually said the words, I actually don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> I mean, you just, wait, could you repeat that? Uh, that's something a CEO has never said. I was surprised by this. And so I hope that, I hope that lasts a little bit. I hope CEOs said that and realized the whole world didn't come crashing down around them. And, you know, realized, you know, got a little bit more culture. Yeah, and look, you know, this sense of vulnerability from leadership, I think is a good thing. Yeah. You know, this, you know, that this idea that you don't know everything is, is, I think, bonding, helps you bond with your people and and makes them want to contribute to the solution. I've got a couple final questions here. Uh, One is quickly about speech writing, which I love. You can't see it, listeners, but behind me in my bookshelves are a couple collections of the Sapphire's collection of the greatest speeches of all time. I just, I occasionally just crack them open and try to be inspired in my own writing. But we've just come through four years, David, where presidential speeches, I think we can all agree, were poorly written and delivered. And, and were not, they even speeches? <laughs> exactly, right. And then at the rallies, they're not speeches. They're, I don't know, some kind of expression of personal troubles. I don't know what those were. <laughs> And we also talk, on the other hand, with endlessly in, in the corporate world and the need for authenticity, but corporate and political world, uh, which seems to argue against scripted remarks. You mentioned earlier the terrific publication, Vital Speeches. What is the future of speech writing, uh, given short attention spans and this focus on sound bites? I'm not worried about short attention spans or sound bites. The purpose of the speech, the social purpose of speech has evolved fundamentally since the first speech was given in a in a cave somewhere <laughs> the first speech was, that was given and the first speeches that were given were efficiency devices they were let's gather everybody around and tell everybody so i don't have to tell everybody one by one then the gutenberg press sort of allowed you to distribute speech uh, speeches and ideas then radio came along and you could broadcast and then tv and then the internet and so now i could reach i can reach you know, everybody with an email, I can reach everybody with a YouTube video. So why am I standing in front of an audience inconveniencing the hell out of 300 people who had to all fly here? And and I'm standing there talking to you in person. Well, that reason must be socio-emotional. That must, that reason must be not purely intellectual. If I have something purely intellectual to share with you, I will send you an email. But if I want you to see what it looks like when I say it, if I want you to feel how it feels to sit next to one another when you hear it, mm-hmm. then I'm going to call you into, into, a, into a room together. So I think speeches are still truly important. I think the words are, are just as important as the, as the, you know, we've had a lot of, we've seen a lot of ground as speechwriters to speaking coaches who think that just being personable Absolutely. and authentic yeah. and warm gets it done. No. Being personable, authentic, warm, and serious and delivering serious ideas and serious words is what gets it done. And there's plenty of room for other formats and panel discussions and 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 interview situations. And, and I've got a 
very, I want, I'm always urging speechwriters to think of themselves as much more than script writers, as, as taking much more responsibility than that. But there is just no substitute for somebody standing in front of an audience and delivering an honestly felt, deeply held idea in precise words and in, and in full throat. So I don't think they're going anywhere. I think that the occasion for formal written remarks goes down a little bit, the number of those, but I think yeah. the the amount that people need to see their leaders in person is not going to go down at all. Interesting. I can't tell you, David, how many communicators, CCOs ask me, should I get a speechwriter? They're new to the job. Should I get a speechwriter for my CEO? And I say, well, absolutely, yes. Yeah. And because there will be occasions that fit the description you just provided. So I would, every time now some, someone asks me that, I'm going to refer to them to the remarks you just made because I think they're spot on. Yeah. And, and look, get a speechwriter who also understands that there's a lot of different ways to, to get the leader across, who understands that video can be used, who understands that their job is more than just to write scripts. So last question, coming back to the book, an effort to understand, and listeners can tell how enthusiastic I am about this book. I think it's really terrific and, and enthusiastic, David, about what you've had to say today. And there's a lot of business and politics in the book. But what stands out for me are the essays and references to your parents, friends, children. And near the end of the book, there is an essay about your father's funeral, and it's titled Words Hold people together. Tell us about that essay and why it has that title. Well, so my dad was a writer. My parents were both writers. And I came to understand that during this funeral, during the, during the time he was dying, I came to understand that all we really had together was words, but that, were, that words were things, that words were a lot. They, they, and they lasted after, after death. Mm -hmm. And so with writers, I think I think writers understand that about words, and I think non-writers maybe don't understand that quite as intimately. And so as my dad and I, I, I'm not sure which passage you might be interested in this. There's a, there's a passage about his funeral, and there's a passage where I just talk about talking to him about words. He and I are the kind latter of- would be, The latter would be great. I the think. funeral itself. Okay, so so- Maybe the best way I can describe what, what I think about words and, and how, they, how they hold us together is just to read from this essay. This is an essay for about a week after my dad died uh, of pancreatic cancer in, in 2009. I told my sisters in an email yesterday, I have to find something to tell people who ask me how dad's funeral was besides, it was great. I suppose I should first answer for myself what was so great about the funeral and the days surrounding it. I think a funeral has more potential than any other kind of occasion to bond people together, and especially a certain kind of funeral, like my dad's funeral. It was a day of communication. Everyone who attended this funeral had a common cause. We were in Middletown, Ohio, in the middle of a bitter winter to mourn what we all agreed was a significant loss. No one came passively aggressively as many do to family holidays. No one came there looking to get laid as some do to weddings. <laughs> and no one secretly suspected that the transformation we were acknowledging was a temporary one as many also do at weddings. The occasion was so undeniably real. A human being had gone from breathing to not breathing, from flesh to ashes that no one talked incessantly about the wonders of the latest iPod. Intra-family agendas and rivalries were lint on a black suit. Even conversations about Obama's crucial economic agenda, even these sounded tinny against the great big backdrop of death of our personal FDR, Truman, Eisenhower, and Kennedy, just to name the first few. Bluster was out, vulnerability was in. 
I'm not somebody who believes that the more you cry, the psychologically healthier you are. Still, it seems good to have an interaction once in a while or a hundred interactions in one week where someone says, I am sorry you are sad and you aren't compelled to say anything more than thank you. Human beings deny their frailty and their pain for very good practical reasons. They don't wanna be a burden to their friends and they don't wanna show their underbelly to their enemies. A funeral gives us a chance to remove the mask and I'm glad I had the courage and the trust in my friends and family to take that chance this week. The subject of the funeral was an enthusiastic person who had integrity. However complex a character my dad was, and he was, and whatever different things he meant to thousands of different people over his 85 years, we were still all talking about the same fellow. Didn't matter if, his, if it was his boyhood friend Bill from the 1920s, his girlfriend Louise from 1940, his nephew Tad, who was a tadpole in the 1950s, his first set of kids who came of age in the 1960s, his second set who grew up in the 1970s, or my daughter, who met granddaddy in 2003. We were all talking about the fellow who jumped out of bed every morning, the kidder whom you could kid, the whistler, the builder of elaborate train layouts in his basement who believed they were real, the word guy, the shy guy, all those things, and the stories held together. The colors all matched. It takes a human being, a certain kind of human being, to unify dozens and dozens of people in a spirit as concentrated as the one that healed me in Middletown last week a reacquaintance not with one or two things that really matter, but with the incredible range of things that matter. I cried while reading some of my dad's words at the funeral. And two days later, when I smelled the sleeve of a plaid flannel shirt hanging in his closet, I fell on the floor and howled. What exists between the words and the sense of the people in our lives? Everything does. So I spent a week with most of the people that I love after exchanging tender phone calls and emails with the rest of the people that I love talking about everything that matters and nothing that doesn't matter. How was my dad's funeral? It was great. The book is an effort to understand hearing one another and ourselves in a nation cracked in half. And the author is David Murray. Thank you, David, for being with us on the call. I really enjoyed it. Thank you, guys. Thanks for listening to The Crux, and make sure to listen for our next episode. Follow us at The Crux on Facebook and on Twitter, and you can find our episodes on SoundCloud and on our website, thecruxpodcast.org.